we are very pleased to present Avital Ronel's survival kit for the anguish. Avital Ronel is professor at the New York University, and since January 2020, she's invited by the Rencontre Philosophique de Monaco as guest philosopher in residence, a prolific author internationally known in the fields of philosophy, German literature, comparative literature. We are very pleased and we hope you enjoy Avital Ronel's survival kit for the anguished. Locked and loaded, shocked and goaded. That's an impoverished verse, almost a nursery rhyme that I just um, grew up in my mind. And the question is, well, I wanted to erase it immediately, but then I thought, why not? Why not um, match the sign of the times with impoverished verse? And I'm following here the model, which is almost an anti-model, an emaciated model of Phyllis Wheatley, who is the mother of um, African-American poetry, who purposely took the road of impoverished verse in order to insinuate a kind of insurgency of language. Um, she emphasized non-exalted poetic utterance in order to convey a kind of um, stripped down existential bareness that um, that rhymed with enslaved being. So um, of course I would want myself to rise with Maya Angelou. I'm not able to do so right now. So hello everyone, bonjour, hola. I'm very glad to see you again or hear you or relate to you as we continue to try to understand what's been accumulated as a traumatic uh, series of tremors, after tremors, the deconfinement, the confinement, our lockdown. And I can only approach warily the momentary shivers that we all have as we're caught up in the grief of racial injustice and the recurring salvo of unrepressed hatred, I will take an off-ramp and approach only warily, as I say, the metaphysics of race, not because I don't have a lot to say and a lot of passionate, and maybe what Hannah Arendt called just rage. There's anger that, that she took from Lessing, whom we discussed a few sessions ago, that is considered to be justified. Others don't ever consider anger justified. So I'm in that tensional structure of unjustified, justified, and um, that's where we live in the unjustified rage that seems to elicit a counter rage. But in any case, um, I'll, I'll approach very quietly, though I feel loud about it and the decibels are very high in my head, such as it is. 
the metaphysics of race and its unrelenting plot lines, its recurrence, and seeming implacability. Um, I was privileged to be friends with the poet Vicki Hearn. She was for a while, the, um, she was also a, an animal trainer. And she was for a while the poet of um, Yale University and was dismissed when she offered a poem on its mascot, Bulldog. Um, I don't think it was appreciated. Nonetheless, Vicki Hearn and I would walk the desert of uh, Riverside, California, and she instructed me on poetry and animals and animal training and Wittgenstein. And she told me that for her, the um, blow away kind of poem that transformed language and her life, the crucial poetic utterance that um, recombinated our worlds after centuries of blind degradation was black is beautiful, which wasn't only a political, but aesthetic and something like self-reflexive utterance. Self-reflection is a problem. It indicates too much control, but um, let's go with that. So um, let me back up and let's use this as a frame that will um, impinge upon us and pinch us and remind us of what Bergson said, which is that we're always in contact with the skin, the barriere of the world. It works us over. Now, this is something that springs up also from Spinoza. And um, as Deleuze said, there were two philosophical events that shook him. Um, and that one was called Spinoza, the other Bergson, if I'm not mistaken. I don't think I am. I don't think I'm making it up. Um, so there's the skin of the world that gets, that we touch, that touches us, that gets under our skin. And this is part of the um, thought of the, the geste barriere that I wanted to consider with you. What, what are these skins that get allergic reaction, that get um, imaginary pigmentation that elicits entire mad discourses? So um, on the level of Bricksonian perception, sensation, what constitutes a color from Goethe's Farbenlehre or discourse on colors, doctrine on colors, colors, to Bergson and others who uh, even question our relation to what constitutes a color. So there's an imaginary um, set of positing orders that need to be uprooted. Let me back up and uh, work with our grief that keeps on multiplying. And let me start small with a speck and not the spectacular and move up with you. So it's not easy to do so, but I listened to a recent podcast and found it to be frightfully slow paced. This aroused worry. And some of you told me after I raised some flags 
not to worry, that my language was timed to keep a pace with thinking, following the beat of no philosopher left behind. For Nietzsche, the question of pace, timing, cadence, untimeliness, a lifetime, and even a time bomb belongs to the philosophical repertory. So here we're reading ourselves, reading, um, even reflecting on things that may seem marginal. But you should know, and many of you do already, that the Greeks made rhythmos, rhythm, a primary philosophical consideration, the very upbeat of thought. So the reluctance to pick up the pace, or on the contrary, the high-speed warp accelerations for which I am clocked, the way I press on, self-interrupt, stammer. One could say, by the way, that Nietzsche philosophized with a stammer, allowing language to falter and dissolve in order to give us access to what cannot be reduced to articulation or assertion, much less to argument or doxa, opinion, or even the problematic rapid fire. The swagger of performativity. Now, keeping the beat. What's a beat? Keeping the beat, staying on the beat, even getting beaten in form and an essential aggregate of the Nietzschean vocabulary, teaching us what it is to walk the walk, to pounce or retreat, to stand up and be counted, to go with your lioness instinct and a reverence for life. Nietzsche mobilizes, as you well know, his animo. This is what Derrida would say, his animal words, his animo, his animals and their pride, a singular prowess of being. Nietzsche's menagerie does not limit itself to majestic animality or human, all too human animality. A donkey's braying introduces the thought of the double, yes, yeah, yeah, says Nietzsche. And this has to come around, the yes in Nietzsche has to come around twice to affirm itself and life. The full range of Nietzsche's zoography is a topic for another time. So is Derrida's update that sees our relation to animals as an integral feature of the metaphysical holding pen in terms of what he calls carnophallo-logocentrism, the way we relate to the human and the animal, including the way we beat the human and animals, eat animals, inciting a thought of incorporation, bad and good. There's the yum-yum factor of, I could eat you up, a child's startup engine for symptom formation. And when does a kiss, I ask you, turn into a cannibalistic capture? The way we live with our companion species, as Donna Haraway says, edipalizing them, forcing them into familialisms, 
arranging their pinch hitting as substitute relatives or children. The way we overlove animals, ride them and confide in them, become horse whisperers to the world of the anguished. These are Nietzschean prompts and goads. But let me rein myself in. Even though horses are famously nervous, I'm going to slow it down, calm it down, center myself. Maybe we can breathe together. <sighs> My slow, mournful pace. What was that about? It was contrapuntal, to be sure, to the event of our deconfinement. One wanted to leap out of house arrest and its attendant forms of stuckness. Instead of racing out of the gate, I reluctantly neighed, fearful of the promise of release and its jubilatory falsifications and an inevitable stumbling block. I was Don Quixote, slowpoke horse, maybe. Maybe not Don Quixote. Okay, that would be too exalted. Let me be his slowpoke horse, Rocinante, which you may remember Cervantes cast as a double for the dreamer hero. Like Don Quixote, Rocinante is awkward, past his prime, and engaged in a task beyond his capacities. Part of me says, nay. Another part says, why not? What's wrong with sluggishly bumping into our limits, our incapacitation? We are all in over our heads. We have been slowed down, but not held back enough, perhaps, or held collectively and alone to the standard of uncompromised reflection. Nietzsche's cow, for example, the being that ruminates with her four stomachs, chewing on an idea, not finishing with it, but sending it back, together with the cowed being, think of the animals who are, by the way, vegetarian, big, bulky, proud, and mournful, elephants, horses, poets, Plato even the monster Frankenstein, Kafka, Tolstoy, and Mike Tyson. For my part, I was slow on the uptake when deconfining was announced. Maybe I was afraid of what would be released into shared and separated spheres of sociality, a libidinal furor, the further degradation of the destitute, the forms of aggression that have collaborated with the viral rage set upon us and that communicated systemic breakdown. I return to our animo. I have put out with you, <laughs> I have put out my totemic mark and having seemed to make the canine my canonic animo, I've expressly tried to, or didn't try, it was imposed upon me, it was a necessity to live things out in dog time, or howling at the moon like a lunatic in the key of the lunar feminine. 
unable to put a muzzle on it. And muzzle is one of the gestes barrières that I would like to study with you. The shield, along with the motif of the mask, of all things, very Nietzschean motif. The shield, the mask, the membrane, the silencer, a wall, material or imaginary, the defense mechanisms of the obsessional neurotic who compulsively cleans and constructs bars, barricades, railings, blockades, roadblocks, and hurdles. My syntax broke down with all of these um, barriers that we set up, not only pathologically, but in so-called normal errant times. So it, all of these blockades are part of a cleanup sanitation uh, project and are usually put up in the name of keeping it clean or, alas, keeping it white and queuing up way too often, whitewashed, falsified, metaphysically pinned on oppositional logic of pernicious consequence. These whitewashed um, efforts are something that we want to consider. And early on, we already discussed what constitutes something that um, depropriates, that is unproperty, that seems to be dirty. So um, I won't even go into the um, dilemma and predicament of the sujet barré, which is the crossed out, marked down subject of which Lacan has a lot to say. I'll put a leash on it. It would be difficult for me to de-idealize my canine canon, part of a whole thinking of fidelity and heedfulness, how I'd like to send the faux masters in today's so-called politics to obedience school, instigating a rigorous philosophical um, kind of um, training of being called. I'm thinking again of poet Vicki Hearn's work, her poems under the name and cover of How to Say Fetch, in which she combines language theory with the problematics of commanding and instructing and how you teach the other animal, human animal, animal to respond to a command rigorously posed and um, understandable. So there's a hermeneutics of commands that politics um, woefully ignores and has remained stupid about. So let me um, continue with and, and think about different types of languages. And um, let me use a wider lens and think with you about all sorts of kennels of canine being, uh, which I, I'll just, of which I'll just uh, make a few bullet points, because I, I think if we could, we'd want to understand a history of militarized dogs, um, 
also dogs that are pulled into traumatic sites, the dogs that welcome you at JFK Airport, the welcoming committee of drug-sniffing dogs, but also the German Shepherd that calumniates the very notion of shepherding care, and other um, trainings, pedagogies, um, out-of-control, um, and howlingly painful um, insistences that dogs are also, um, well, that that set up dogs as, as those beings that can be brutally set upon with racist training. So in the rhetoric of social depravity and brutality characteristic of the, the dangerous, unleashed Donald Trump, um, this um, very dangerous, as I'm saying, um, commander who can't command, doesn't understand command words, hasn't read Vicki Hearn or Wittgenstein or other language theorists, of course. He threatens to unleash vicious dogs, says he, weaponizing the canine cannon in a kind of rhetorical chiasmus that um, even shows wish fulfillment. Uh, this is someone who is himself, if we were to honor his sadistic um, bloating, we could say he's a vicious dog, but that would be placing dishonor on my uh, perhaps overly idealized canine canon, to which I um, allow some unconscious currents. I don't know what, why I sometimes become a dog, but I do remember that when Derrida was um, in his last days, I decided to become a dog and just quietly hang around and um, visit with the exigencies of crossing over and mor mortality of the philosopher while reading De Quincey on Kant's last days. Um, now I fall into an abyss of trying to figure out what it is about dogs, God, dogs, God, dogs. I don't know. But there's another counter narrative that I'd like us to consider as we open up the range of being and critical intrusion and helpfulness, the very thought of rescue and safety that dogs events. The dogs in and of philosophy, Schopenhauer and his best friend. All of this is, and of course, Freud and his dogs, let's say proximity and when the pain of, of terrible separation. And here I philosophize with a stammer because I do want to offer a counter narrative, which is that of Levinas when he was in. Um, a concentration camp, a work camp. And um, he said that um, he was barked at, as were the other prisoners, the inmates, and we're still following a track of penitentiary cultures. They were um, 
They were put out to brutalizing work. They were barked at. They were called Schweinhunde, which is a German, um, a very brutal way of um, designating the other as a hybrid pig dog, both of which I honor and love, pigs and dogs. And, um, and Levinas said that when they would uh, come back to the barracks after a day in forced labor and they were degraded and dehumanized, only one being conferred or reconferred something like a humanity, a, um, a benevolent humanity on, on the prisoners. And that was Bobby the dog would come rushing forth, wagging his tail, barking a greeting, and rehumanizing the degraded beings that were in forced labor. Now, Bergson, Bergson, when he thinks about memory and material, he asks the question about la reconnaissance that dogs have. How do dogs recognize and greet the other, bringing it into being, welcoming it into being, as Hannah Arendt would say? And to what extent do we remember and need that welcoming every day and that greeting, which in French, remember, is a salut, which promises health, some sort of sal salutary responsiveness to one's terrible degradations. So this is not the happiest note to end on, but I want to um, match Prince with the times now and try to get us to think together in marginal ways, in ways that don't necessarily follow mainstream political assertion, in order to sneak into more secret spaces and stealth kinds of articulations and disarticulations that actually get under our skin, give us the hives, and make us respond to the world's skin in a Bergsonian way that we will continue to explore together. Wishing you health and asking that we find ways to demand justice, even though, as Derrida has said, no one has ever seen something like justice uh, substantially implemented or or restored. It's, a, it's an idea toward which we always have to orient ourselves and move our bodies and strain our minds. Because if the only notion of justice is that of King Solomon, an offer to slash the child in half, a kind of corporeal civil war, um, that's pretty violent. But let's stay with that. That's our heritage. And it doesn't, it certainly doesn't exempt us from the strains and efforts that are calling to us right now. Take care, be safe, be careful, be 
proud, and I'll see you next.